You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we are talking about evil. <laughs> the forces of darkness all around us. And, you know, if we're watching a movie, an action series, or a sci-fi or such, it's understandable that... We have a lot of resolution for evil there. We know that Batman or Superman or whoever it is is going to come and deal with the evil, and we can all rest safely that evening. But but what about us? Evil is fine, it seems, when it's on a big screen, but what happens when it hits home? In fact, why do we even have it to begin with? In order to discuss this topic, I brought on someone who uh, has a Spent extensive time studying this topic, and interestingly, after all this time, has finally released his first book. And that's uh, Clay Jones. He holds a Doctor of Ministry degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is an Associate Professor in the Master of Arts in Christian Projects program at Biola University. Formerly, he hosted Contend for Truth, a nationally syndicated car and talk radio program where he debated professors radio talk show hosts, cultists, religious leaders, and representatives from animal rights, abortion rights, gay rights, and atheist organizations. Clay was the CEO of Simon Greenleaf University, now Trinity Law and Graduate Schools, and was on the pastoral staff of two large churches. He is a chairman of a board of the University Apologetics Ministry, Ratio Christi, is a contributing writer for the Christian Research Journal, and specializes in issues related to why God allows evil. You can read his blog at ClayJones.net, find him on Facebook, and follow him on Twitter at Clay B. Jones. Clay has offered, Why Does God Allow Evil? Comparing Answers for Life's Toughest Questions, which is a book we're talking about today. So, Dr. Jones, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. A pleasure to be with you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about you know how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, I... I I mentioned this in my book, but the bottom line is, is that uh, my childhood was rough. Uh, a lot of people had it worse than I did. My wife, in fact, had it a lot worse as a child than I did. But uh, I struggled with a lot of things, and I was sick a lot and whatnot. But then I became a Christian when I was 12. And then later, uh, I, I, as, as I grew in Christ in my teen years, I began to see God use suffering for my benefit. And that was, frankly, amazing to me. Then when I got it started pastoring, I got my BA and my Master of Divinity, and I started became an associate pastor at a church, I began to understand the glory that God has in store for us forever mm-hmm. and ever. Uh, and that was life-changing. 
In fact, I will say right now that I think the biggest problem that most Christians have in the world is that they don't have a very uh, strong appreciation of heaven, and so their Christianity becomes this worldly. But anyway, as I began to understand the glory that awaits us in heaven forever, and this became the major study of my life, I mean by far the major study of my life, uh, and then I began to think, now that I see where we're going and what, I, what God has done in us, that he's giving us the kingdom and he's going to exalt us to be with, he's going to glorify us and that we're going to reign with Jesus forever and ever. And then I began to think about uh, where did we come from? In other words, where does the non-Christian come from? What is it like to be a non-Christian before you become a Christian? And so I studied our lost condition, mm-hmm. uh, the lost condition of, hum- of all humans were born into a lost, lost condition, were fallen. And I've spent a lot of time studying the horror, frankly, of human evil. And when I began to really get a grip on those two things, the the horror of human evil and the glory that God has in store for the Christian forever and ever, uh, frankly, the problem of evil just went away. And I realized this is going to be, some people are going to think that's an outlandish claim, but I just began to not see the problem of evil. And then 20 Four years ago, somebody suggested that I write a book on the topic, and I thought, okay, I'd like to do that. And anyway, that's what happened. So I came, I, I, as I mentioned in my book, I think I came to the problem of evil exactly backward, because I think most people come to the problem of evil by seeing there's evil in the world, and they think, okay, uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to address this? What's God doing? I didn't come to it by because I saw evil in the world. I came to it because I saw God's goodness and glory, and I saw the evil of humankind, and it just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, it's not that I didn't have a lot of questions to answer, but for the next 23 years now, I've been studying uh, everything related to why God allows issue, evil, mm-hmm. why God allows evil. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking in another way, you seem to have got things backwards, because usually I think most of all, just write the book, and then they go out and establish their careers. You went out and established your career and a reputation, and 24 years later, here comes the book, finally. Yeah, it's pretty true, Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something... I've been on this subject for many years at Biola University, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, I mean, for years now, and then, so the books come out after... But see, the teaching, God's timing is always perfect. My being able to teach master's students in our Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics program... Being able to teach master's students for years now on this topic uh, has sharpened me, has honed me, and I've learned the objections that people uh, have and the questions mm-hmm. they have, and so that that informed my book, further informed my book. Yeah. Now, let's uh, start getting into this here. I mean, Dr. Jones, you and I are married men, okay? Now, we might not be the most physically capable of married men, but we love our wives greatly. And if anyone came to do any kind of evil against our wives and we saw it, you and I, I'm sure, would leap into action, ready to come to their defense and doing whatever we can to stop it. Now, that's what would be expected. If we didn't do that, people would look and say, gosh, you really don't care about those women in your lives. So why is it that we can love our wives so much and we would do anything to prevent the evil? But God loves us so much more, and he's got all the power and such. 
and yet it seems he does nothing whatsoever when evil strikes. Well, that's, of course, a classic question, as you know, Nick, this kind of why doesn't God intervene more than he does? And I guess that's what much of the book, of course, is about. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't God intervene more than he does? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different answers to that, and so let's just start unpacking them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first of them is uh, the Lord wanted to create beings that have free will, and you cannot allow or you cannot create a being to have free will and not allow them to use their free will wrongly. That's as logical as it gets. Uh, For instance, you cannot... Tell, tell your daughter that she can go out on a date with a punk down the street and then chain her to a heavy kitchen appliance. That's not giving her free will. Uh, you can't, the only way you can give a being free will is to allow them to use it wrongly. And that's what God did with Adam and Eve. And, and God in the very beginning, of course, the Lord in the very beginning, before Adam and Eve choose, chose to rebel against him, he put them in an environment that was completely safe. Uh, They weren't in danger from anything. Uh, Life was good. All they had to do all day long was uh, garden and play with creations only, uh, physically perfect and completely naked member of the opposite sex. There was nothing to harm them. Oh, what great suffering that must have been. (laughs) Yes. But... But sooner or later, they rebelled. Now, once you've got rebels, mm-hmm. what's the Lord to do about people who are in rebellion against him? How does he, how does he teach them that the re, the, their rebellion against him is a bad thing? Well, I think he does what the Lord did with Adam and Eve. And, and what he did was, is uh, the, well, the first thing he did is he cursed the ground. One of the first things he did is he cursed the ground, which I argue enables all kinds of, can enable every kind of pestilence, disease. He curses the ground. And then the next thing that he does uh, is that he banishes them from the Garden of Eden, and that removed them from the rejuvenating power of the Tree of Life. And so they started to die immediately. They were on their way towards dying from then on, and, and uh, the question is, what what would you have God do once they decided to rebel against him, and once the Lord now had the human race in rebellion against him, is he going to soften everything for them? Is mm-hmm. he going to leave them basically in a garden where they can just play and be happy? Well, if he did that, how's he going to teach them the horror of rebellion against him? And so what he's done is he's, he's created a world where we are learning the horror of rebellion against God. And we're learning the horror of sin and that sin is bad. And when it comes to, for instance, a man hurting another man or a man hurting a woman or whatever, mm-hmm. God could stop all of that. It's true. He could keep men and from hurting or women from hurting each other. He could do that. But notice then that how is he going to do that without interfering with their free will? Mm -hmm. If he wants people to learn about free will, how does he stop them from being hurt and injuring others without constantly interfering with their free will? I I don't think that's possible. Uh, So uh, 
anyway, that's that's the beginning of this. I, I think, in a sense, we're we're probably going to talk about issues related to this, but that's the beginning of this. And I think the biggest thing is, is because God, the biggest reason, the shortest, and to encapsulate this is because God wanted to create beings with free will, and he can't constantly interfere with their free will, uh, and still, or otherwise they don't have free will. And so, and then atheists, of course, say, well, where do you, why doesn't God prevent more evil? Well, uh, that's very subjective. And what if God wants to teach free beings the horror of rebellion? Well, I think he does it like this. So in a nut, in that's more than a nutshell, but it, it that's basically uh, the shorter shorter answer to why God uh, doesn't intervene all the time because he'd interfere with people's free will to the point where people didn't have free will. Yeah, but you know, uh, someone I think could be asking, well, why does free will matter so much here? Well, you know, that's a great question, and and I think the answer to that. Well, there's several answers to that, but one of them is we can't even really imagine what it would be like to only be around beings that are beings. They're not even beings, B-E-I-N-G-S. What could we what could we imagine being around things that just don't have free will? I mean, for instance, would you be happy in life as a person if you were not around anything that had more free will than your toaster or your blender? Mm. Uh you're, you're not going to be very happy because you want to be with other beings. And that's what the Lord saw, it says in Genesis, he says that, I, that he saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And to even begin to figure out a something like a, a, a robot, an automaton, a cyborg, whatever you want to call them, an android, uh, and so on, which we see, <clears throat> see a lot now in science fiction. Yeah. Uh, it's just, would you really enjoy that? Would you really enjoy being around robots and not being around uh, beings that were capable of truly and freely loving you or not? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm kind of thinking of a situation we could kind of consider like a Stepford Wives kind of thing where, you know, now they're saying that they're coming up with robots that people can have sex with, for instance. I mean, you know, yes. even if the physical sensations and pleasures were all the same, I don't think it could begin to compare to, for instance, my wife coming to me and letting me know that she freely wants to be with me. I, I just don't see any comparison whatsoever. I don't either. Uh, and, and I don't, I, I mean, you can even program these, they call them sex bots. You can program a sex bot to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and you're the best. Mm-hmm. Honey, but what that what does that mean? It doesn't yeah. mean anything because you know it's just programmed to tell you I love you, like you're going to care about a something you know uh, an android or the female version of android is gynoid. Are you going to care about a gynoid uh, telling you I love you? You're the best. What does that mean? It doesn't wouldn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that would be just silly. It would, that's just no more than a chatty Kathy doll that says, I love you, when you pull its string. I mean, what's that about? Uh, and nobody really wants to be married to a robot because everybody knows that a robot is just really three steps above inflatable. Yeah. Now, I don't know your soteriology, Dr. Jones, on this kind of topic. I mean, I'm much more minion in my thinking, but what would you say to someone who's – I mean, I'm sure there are some Calvinists who listen to the show who 
are very skeptical about this whole free will thing. Well, one of the things that, as I point out in my book, and boy, this is a big topic, as you know, Nick. Yeah. One of the things that I point out in my book is that my, the theodicy that I present is actually compatible with Calvinist election or Arminian provenient grace. Mm -hmm. uh, it's compatible with both. Uh, because God can determine some things without determining everything. Right. And I don't think a lot of people, when I, well, I, I deal with my students every semester on this topic, and, and they think that it's either God determines everything or God determines nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, let's be clear about this for just a moment. There are absolutely no Christians in the world, and by that I mean the set of Christians who say that God determines nothing is null, it's void. Mm -hmm. There's not one Christian in the world that think that God determines nothing. Right. Obviously, God determines the way the planets are going to interact with each other. He's the one that determined gravity. Uh, I dare say I'll go so far as to say he determined my hair color because I don't dye my hair. I mean, uh, even open theists would agree with a lot of this. Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. There are. There's no one. See, so, and in fact, I'm going to go a step farther and say I think God determines probably most things uh, in the universe. I think he probably determines most things. But what I don't think that he determines is our every thought indeed, so that no one can ever do other than he does or she does. Uh, because once you go there and you say that God determines our every thought and our every deed so that no one can ever do other than they do, once you become a, and that's called determinist, once you hold the determinism, uh, then when a man decides to torture to death the little girl next door, and the next day he wakes up and does, in fact, torture this little girl to death, that every cut, every burn, every penetration, every humiliation that he does to that little girl, you, you, if you're going to be consistent, you have to say that God so reigns the affairs of the universe that that man couldn't not uh, have tortured that little girl to death, that, that he had to torture that little girl to death because God had so arranged the universe that he wouldn't be able to not do it. And I'm using double negatives here, but those who are familiar with the arguments have a tendency to do that. They use that, that God has determined the world so that the man couldn't not do it. In other words, that he had to do it. Uh, and so back to my thing. So mo Christians believe that God has determined most things. But a determinist is actually an extreme, extreme view. A determinist is someone who says God determines absolutely every single thing that ever happens, including our every thought and every deed, so that no one can ever think other than they do. Uh, well, if you do that, I don't know how you solve the problem of evil or even get close to presenting a theodicy. And I think that's why R.C. Sproul says, uh, I do not know the answer to the problem of evil, nor no, do I know anyone else who does. Because if you hold to, de if you go so far as to hold to determinism, then you're not going to be able to successfully answer why God allows evil. Mm -hmm. Now, with the double negatives, I can make sure all grammar Nazis out there listening, send your emails to, to Dr. Jones, okay? I'm not responsible there. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know what I mean? When I reviewed your book, and it's an excellent book. Uh, I'm completely honest with my reviews. One thing I I thought could have used a little bit more explanation. This is something you said. Story you said like, just a while ago about all disease and pestilence and such coming from afar. 
And I think if we go with data that seems to be the reigning scientific data of the time, it looks like there was a lot of suffering in the world before the fall took place. So, I mean, is your well, theodicy depends, compatible? Well, it depends on whether you're a young earther or an old earther. Yeah. Uh, and I'm agnostic to that. Uh, and uh, I I present in the footnotes, and I think if you you probably didn't look at the footnotes on this particular point, uh, Nick, but I actually spend in the footnotes on this section, I spend some extra time going through what would happen if uh, we have an old Earth model of the universe. Mm-hmm. I think William Dembski, who wrote a book entitled The End of Christianity, goes mm-hmm. gives one possible answer to this, and that is uh, that God knew that all this, that we were going to rebel, and so because of that, he basically allowed suffering to occur before the rebellion because he knew it was coming. And by that, by the suffering I'm talking about, he would mean animal death. But let me answer it in a different way than that. There's William Dembski's answer, which I've just roughly given it. I present it in more detail in my book. But let me give another answer. I don't think that animal death is necessarily an evil. Uh, it's not clear to me that animal death is necessarily an evil. Now, uh, I think that people intuit, and I think that's the correct word, that people intuit, oh, God, that's so terrible, of course it's evil. Well, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, but I'm just not sure that that's true. I'm not, and I'm not sure that this, you can't say scripturally that there was no animal death before the fall. And I'm I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, that, that there wasn't. Maybe I'm not sure it's wrong to say that that God allowed animals to to uh, eat each other before the fall, or to die, even if He didn't allow them to eat each other. If think about this for a minute, if Adam and Eve had never seen an animal die even once, if they'd never seen a creature die, not even one time, what would it mean to them for God to say, on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die? It's an because point. they wouldn't know what death was. What would de- What's death? I think that, you know, you should have them go, the next question could have been in Genesis, well, what's death? Because we've never seen it. Uh, we don't even know what it looks like. And so, and people go, yeah, but killing animals... I, you know, I, I point out to people, and especially when I've argued, debated, I've debated the people for the ethical treatment of animals on several occasions. Uh, when I point out to people, Jesus ate fish in his post-resurrection body. Hello? Uh, so <laughs> I think that's interesting that Jesus was not, even in his post-resurrection body, ate fish. Uh, he could have said, oh, man, no, I'm now the, you know, I got this new resurrected body. Uh, I'm, I'm only going to eat grains, whole grains of that, you know, I mean, anyway, so I think it's, I, I, the fact that we may intuit that this is terrible or bad or whatever, I, I'm sorry, but I, I, it's all it is, is your intuition. You yeah. don't really have anything beyond that. Sometimes people will try to apply, appeal to Matthew, or excuse me, to Romans 5.12, you know, that about Romans 5, where it says sin, sin and death entered the world through Adam's sin, but I don't. I think that to say that necessarily also was referring to animal death is just a stretch. Yeah, uh, that it it just it's just too far to go. It's a bridge too far. 
Yeah, I I think this morning or this afternoon for lunch, my wife had chicken fingers. Uh-oh. And after the show, we'll be going to join her parents for my mother-in-law's birthday at an Italian restaurant. And I'll probably be having shrimp. So I'm not going to be thinking that about the, the great death that's supposed to be there, the death of animals. And I, I think some of this, the way we think about it could also be kind of what it's been described as for Disneyfication of our world. That we've seen so many Disney movies with animals being pretty much turned into little humans and such. And now you see a deer on the side of the road and everyone thinks about Bambi. Right. I think that's true. And, and uh, But like I say, I'm actually officially agnostic. Mm-hmm. to whether the earth is young or old, but but what you were asking, and it's a very good question, if it is an old earth, how do you account for animal suffering right. and death prior to the fall? Well, you know, I, I would just encourage people to look at my book, and especially at the footnotes. Uh, I, I have, uh, my book is about 80,000 words long, except there's 20,000 words in footnotes. So I had 568 footnotes. So for people that want to go a little deeper, I'd look further there. Yeah. And also, I think to be fair, while we have been talking about animals here, I think we'd all agree that part problem of evil does come with kind of a wanton abuse of animals, that we should still care for oh, the yes. animal world properly. Oh, God, yes. I mean... The scripture says that the right, that the wicked are cruel to their animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not. To, we are to be kind to our animals. But notice that even though Solomon said uh, that the, the the wicked are cruel to their animals, even though Solomon said that, Solomon was all for eating meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously, he didn't think that the proper uh, you know raising of animals didn't include eating them. <laughs> so, but you need to be, but. To be cruel to animals is simply uh, contrary to the word of God, and it, frankly, it's terribly sinful. Yeah. Now, something I also said about your book, and it's an interesting thing about it. I said, I loved this book, and I hated this book <laughs> at the same time. Because, you know, I mean, when we talk about the problem of evil, it's really easy to talk about it when it's something out there. But your book makes it something internal as well. I mean, I think one of the greatest looks of this is when we talk about people who commit the atrocities, the Nazi war criminals, the serial killers and people like that. And, you know, if we were supposed to be giving you like a profile of one of these, we'd say, uh, yeah, these are people, they were the meanest people in town. They were just big bullies. They walked down the street and kicked dogs whenever they saw them. They they ruled with an iron fist over their wives or children, were terrified of them. I mean, that's what these people were like, right? Right. That's what people think, is that's an evil person, right? Is That's what evil people do. But it's much, that that's not true. I mean, uh, there's what we have in America, Nick, is we have an awful lot of people who think they're good, were desperately sinful on the inwardly sinful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so one of the things uh, that I, as I point out in my book uh, is, well, you know, I, I asked the question of my students, why do gangbangers stop at red lights? And that throws them, frankly, Mm -hmm. people go, well, gee, I don't know, because they don't want to get a ticket. 
I go, well, yeah, sure, I'm sure that's one of the reasons that gangbangers stop at red lights, but isn't there a more compelling reason? I mean, it's not because gangbangers sit there and go, well, I don't agree with any other laws and I ignore them all, but red light laws I really respect. That's not what they're doing. What, why are they stopping at red lights? Well, isn't the real reason that a gangbanger stops at a red light is because they don't want to be hit by an 18-wheeler and turned into red asphalt. That's the real reason that a gangbanger stops at a red light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I press it a little further. Uh, when it comes to adultery, Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Well, if people are lusting after each other and committing adultery in their hearts, why don't they actually do the deed, assuming they can find mm-hmm. something that's willing to do it with them? Why don't they actually do it? Well, again, isn't it self-interest? I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to get her pregnant. Uh, I don't want to get a disease. That would be hard to explain. Take, come one, one day your, your spouse says, well, that's new, honey. Where'd you get that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so on. Uh, in, in other words, the, re- the reason if people are fantasizing about having sex with people they're not married to, but they're not doing it, the reason they're not doing it isn't out of moral goodness. It's out of self-interest. Uh, similarly, John says in First John, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, <clears throat> if you hate somebody's guts, why don't you murder them? Again, it's about self-interest, right? Right. That the reason you're not murdering is because, you know, I, I've seen those guys in the prison population, and I don't want to be in there with them. Uh, that would be bad, uh, or I could lose, be executed, or I, what if I'm harmed in the attempt to murder somebody else, and so on. I'd lose my job, I'd lose my family, I'd be incarcerated, and on and on and on. But notice that the reason you're not murdering is out of self-interest. And so I kiddingly ask audiences all the time, uh, how, how many of you got out of junior high without being adulterous murderers? I didn't. Uh, I hated kids and they hated me, and I don't think I need to explain the adulterous aspect of a (laughs) junior high school boy's mind. So I was an adulterous murderer by the time I was in junior high. Mm -hmm. But what we have, Nick, is we have these people going – United States is full of these quote-unquote good people who think they're good, but really they're adulterous murderers in their hearts. And the reason they're not act, but they think they're good because they're not acting it out. When the only reason they're not acting it out is self-interest. Mm-hmm. That's what this world is full of: is adulterous murderers who think they're good people. Yeah, you know, I I think that usually it's my understanding when these serial killers are arrested and such, and the police find who they are. But most of the neighbors, I can say, I never would have thought that about him. He seemed like such a nice man. Yeah, again and again and again. Uh, I really encourage people, the next time they catch another uh, uh, serial killer, uh, see how the neighbors neighbors talk about him. You're right, because the neighbors will go, he seemed like a nice guy. Uh, They might say he was quiet, kept to himself, but nobody suspected that he was going to uh, kill a whole bunch of people. Even this this shooter uh, in Las Vegas, people would say he was quiet and that he kept to himself and stuff like that. But nobody had a clue, unless there's something I haven't read that's come out recently, nobody had a clue that he was going to just kill a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and be, it just doesn't work that way. But obviously it was in his heart to kill a whole lot of people. So, again, people aren't good. One of the things about those who carried off genocide 
is they're generally average people. And I quote in my book a series of uh, genocide victims and genocide uh, uh researchers who agree that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. And so humans are not good, and that's just simply all there is to it. Well, that must have been some very enjoyable reading. Uh, you know, it was, I'll tell you, the reading and reading one genocide book after another, uh, I got to be honest with you, it was a kind of, I cannot look, yet I cannot turn away sort of experience. Because you're going on the one hand, you're just, it's revolting. And I mean, when I would read some of the things that I put in my book, frankly, uh, there'd be a two or three days afterwards where I'd feel just a little bit depressed, a little bit sick. Uh, a book I don't assign to my students is a book called The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang. And uh, it's on uh, Japan's invasion of Nanking, China in 1937 and what went on there. Well, after I'd read that book, I was sick for a while. I had a student write to me who's a pastor, and he says, you know, he says, I read that book. I've read your stuff, and I've read that book. He says, and honestly, you set me back for a couple of weeks, but you've changed my ministry forever, because this information really is life-changing information. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever had a student that you've assigned someone's kind of reading to, and they've come to you and said, look, I want to. I, I just don't think I can bring myself to finish this. Occasionally, it's rare, but occasionally I do. I, I remember uh, one student in our online discussion in the Why God Allows Evil class said, "I the book that I do assign is entitled Ordinary Men, Police Batal Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Uh, Christopher Browning, who wrote it, mm -hmm. uh, Notice the title, Ordinary Men, uh, concluded that these were just simply ordinary men. Well, anyway, one student once said, uh, I'm not going to read it. This is just too upsetting. And a, a woman, uh, students who happened to be a little older and the mother of grown children, wrote, replied to us, they says, you know, I'm not your mom, but I'm going to just tell you that before I read this book, if you'd asked me if I could have participated in genocide, I would have said no possible way. But she said, but after reading this book, she says, I'm convinced I could have participated in genocide if I weren't a Christian. Uh, and so she concludes, I thought this was funny, she concludes, she says, I'm not your mother, but get busy and read that book. Well, I don't think he did, but it is occasion. But, you know, I give 12 reasons, Nick, and I don't know whether you were going to talk about this or not on how it changed my life to understand the depths of human evil. And I'll tell you the biggest reason people don't want to read about human evil and study it, and, and this is one of the benefits of it, is because uh, when you understand the depths of human sinfulness, it unsettles our worldliness. And people don't want to have their worldliness unsettled. They want to go on just kind of with this Pollyanna, uh, as you kind of mentioned, Disney-esque you know, the Disneyfication of the world and kind of believe, hey, the world's a wonderful place and people are really good down in the depths of their hearts. And that's just simply false. But they don't want to read this kind of thing because because it unsettles your worldliness, because the world then is, frankly, I hate this world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do. I hate it. Now, 
I don't want people to think that I'm like Eeyore because I'm not. You know, the donkey from Winnie the Pooh who was, yeah. you know, why shouldn't I be happy? Because it's my birthday. I'm not a sad person. And I'm not a downer. You know, if you talk to my friends, I wouldn't go, oh, yeah, Clay's a downer to be with because he's just, you know, his worldliness is unsettled and he's a downer. I'm not. But the reason I'm not unsettled by this is because I know how it ends. Mm-hmm. I know how God's going to fix everything. He's coming back. And he's going to fix it all. It's all going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm not a down person. But like I say, the reason people don't want to think about these things is because it is unsettling. And you find that this world really is a terrible place. Now, like I say, I, I sit down with friends all the time and have, I did last night and have a nice dinner with friends, enjoyed it thoroughly, had a good time. But that doesn't change the fact that I don't realize in my down deep that humans aren't good outside of the work of Christ that is. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go very personal on this here, but I mean, that, a couple of years or so ago when my wife and I were still living in Knoxville and we came here because ETS was taking place here, Mike had said I could go with him and afterwards you spoke at Bill Craig's church and I was there and you knew me some, you'd been on my show before and I heard you talking about this stuff, the whole cost-benefit analysis that you said, you know, if you hate your brother, the only reason you're not murdering him right now is because the benefits outweigh the cost of not doing it, but if things change, you would do it. And I had someone who uh, had heard Audi there, and I was very, very upset with it. Rightfully so, I think I could say, in fact. And I was still wrestling because, you know, I'd see those passages and I was wondering, you know, in First John it says, anyone who hates his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. But, geez, I, I don't want to be like that. And I remember I went up to you and said, hey, can we talk about this sometime? And you arranged a talk with me and we had a good long talk and it was incredibly helpful because, I mean, even I, I mean, if either I'd been left unchecked, I mean, even if nothing would have ever happened, it still would have been going there, you know? I mean, it still would have been eating away at me and such. And ultimately, what changed it is, instead of fearing anger towards this guy, I eventually got to the point where I felt sorry for him, for what he'd done, and pity replaced anger. But I mean, that, that's what it takes sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it really does. And we've got to get a hold of ourselves. And uh, mm-hmm. the true Christian, though, see, that's just to me, Nick, an example of the Holy Spirit working in your life, yeah. convicting you of your heart being wrong, and then you change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have, you know, I mean, and this is the case with Christians. I know how hard it is to resist sin, and I've fallen to plenty of it over the last, oh, many, yeah, I've been a Christian now a long time. Uh, 48 years. I became a Christian when I was 12. So now you know, and now everybody knows. But anyway, uh, but I follow. Yeah, we, we all know you're 39 now. Uh, yes, that makes me 39. Good. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I fall into a lot of sin, but I'll tell you something. The Holy Spirit, and that's me as a Christian who really wants to please the Lord. Right. Well, man, as a non-Christian, look out, folks, because non-Christians are harboring adultery and hatred in their hearts, and then they're going, "But I'm a good person," and mm-hmm. you're because they're not actually doing it. 
when really the only reason they're not doing it, as I said, is because of self-interest. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make you a good person. That just makes you an adulterer in your, and a murderer in your heart. Yeah. It's very scary stuff to hear. I mean, I was hearing you talk about this, and it was a good thing to hear you talk about, but I was, I'd gotten there late, so I didn't want to do anything, so I was sitting outside the sanctuary hearing this, and it's like, here comes this crushing weight down on me, think, oh my gosh, this is something I need to hear, but honestly, I don't want to hear it right now. Right, no, I understand. We, we all have to fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit on occasion and go, whoa, I need to change. Yeah, yeah. So at the same time, I mean, I think we need to realize that yes, we all do need to change at times, but we don't want people out there, you know, beating themselves up for us because, you know, what really, you are much more normal than you realize. You're struggling with the things with flesh, and that's normal. Well, yes, absolutely, uh, that is normal. And people will say to me, younger Christians especially. Uh, am I ever going to get over whatever sin is besetting them? And my answer, and they're upset that they're still struggling with sin. And I have two things to say to them. And the first thing is, the fact that you're struggling with sin is exactly, shows that you're a Christian. When I was a non-Christian, I wasn't struggling with sin. I was only struggling with being caught. Mm-hmm. Uh and I was a shoplifting, porn-loving little punk. And I, before I became a Christian at 12, almost 13 years old, but I wasn't that concerned about the fact that I was shoplifting or got my friends to start shoplifting or that I was looking at porn or whatever. When I was 12 years old, I didn't really, I, I just didn't want to get caught. But then I became a Christian. And uh, boy, I changed. You know, all of a sudden I thought, I've got, you know, I have to live a new life here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember as a 13-year-old Christian going, God, I even have to obey my parents. Wow, what's that about? So, uh, you know, but, but so yeah, uh, the fact that people are struggling, but I encourage, the, the, so the first thing I say is, yeah, sure, the fact that you're struggling with sin, that's a good sign because it shows everybody uh, that you really are a Christian, the fact that you don't want, you're not comfortable with sin anymore. The other thing I'd say to them is, hang in there. Keep reading the Word of God regularly. Keep meditating on the Word of God and trying to please Him, and you're going to find that sin becomes less and less and less and less in your life as you continue on in Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about this also is we start talking about this whole serial killers and such. I mean, let's talk about some like a Adolf Eichmann, for instance, who was one of the main Nazi war criminals out there. What kind of person was he like in his home life? Eichmann uh, was a nice guy. I, I think by by almost all accounts, Eichmann was a, was considered to be a good fellow, and uh, and that's what a lot of people don't want to to focus on. But Eichmann was, you know, I mean, had a good home life, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, Hannah Arndt, who really started genocide studies, said about. When, when Eichmann was the administrator of Auschwitz, I guess I should have said that yeah. a little earlier, but Eichmann was the administrator of Auschwitz. And after World War II, he fled to Germany. And uh, I mean, to Argentina. Yeah, excuse I was me. about to say, if something seems yeah, to that would be a place to flee to. But anyway, he fled to, he fled to Argentina. And Hannah Arndt uh, went and watched his trial in Argentina to kind of figure out who is this 
Eichmann fellow. What's he about? And her conclusion uh, was was rather shocking, frankly. Uh, she said the main trouble with Eichmann was that there were so many like him. Uh, in fact, I'll let I'll read the quote. Here's what she said in her book entitled Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of uh, evil. She said the main trouble with Eichmann was that there were so many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. In other words, here you have this woman going, he was a normal guy. Mm-hmm. But people don't want to hear that. But that's what all of the Holocaust and genocide researchers come to. All of them say it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. Even the victims, Nick, the mm-hmm. victims conclude that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. For instance, Auschwitz survivor Ellie Wiesel said, deep down, man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator. He's all three at once. And one of the reasons, by the way, that Elie Wiesel concludes that genocide is what humans do is because the reason that they, the Germans were able to kill all these Jews is because so many Jews helped them. Uh, that they were in, in the concentration camps, the people manning the gas chambers typically were Jews. Uh, because they would get benefit, the Jews would get the, man the gas chambers and help kill other Jews, would, be, would get benefits from the Germans, and so they were willing to help kill Jews for those benefits. And so Ellie Wazell and others went, you can't conclude that it's, this is just what people do, that people do genocide. Does, do you honestly get scared when you read those kinds of things, Sam? Well, you know, it's interesting you should ask that question because there's a fellow named um, uh, George, well, a couple of guys, George Crenn and Leon Rappaport, they wrote a book on the Holocaust, and it, their opening words were, what, or their conclusion rather was, what remains is a central deadening sense of despair over the human species. Where can one find an affirmative meaning in life if human beings can do such things? But then they said, and this is to your point, they mm-hmm. said, if along with this despair comes a desperate new feeling of vulnerability attached to the one, the fact that one is human, if one keeps at the Holocaust long enough, then sooner or later the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows finally that one might either do it or be done to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exact. You know, I mean, oh, I know people can turn, you know, on people and very easily. And I would just listen. I encourage your listeners, Nick, to just pay attention to the level of rhetoric that's going on out there towards Christians right now, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of people that just, you know, I mean, uh, out there that really hate Christians. Yeah. And uh, I mean, then the only reason, anyway, so it's not good. Yeah. And I think some of us could say, well, these are Nazi criminals and such. I mean, surely it's not the man on the street. Then it's like, what about this thing called the Milgram experiment? Oh, yes. Well, you know, that's a great, uh, you know, what happened was, is after the Holocaust, uh, people were blown away, frankly, uh, by what happened in the Holocaust, that that you'd have them murder, the Germans murdered six million Jews. But it wasn't just six million Jews. A lot of people forget that the Germans murdered almost six million people of uh, Slavic descent, uh, Poles and Gypsies and uh, Russians and so on, they murdered almost six million other people. 
and and uh, people people were just kind of amazed. How does this happen in a very educated country that you would have them decide to murder 12 million people? And so there was a researcher named Stanley Milgram at Yale University, and he thought, you know, let's let's put together a test and see what happens. And so he ran an ad in the newspaper uh, saying, hey, would you like to participate in a, in a study uh, on learning? Uh, and so what he did is, is he runs this ad, and he actually even offered the money, and people would show up at the door, two people at once, they'd get appointments, they'd show up at the door, they would flip a coin, and one of them would be made the, uh, the teacher, and the other one would be made a learner. And so the learner is strapped into a chair with electrodes attached to his arm, and the teacher then is told by the experiment uh, by the experimenter uh, every time he gets an answer wrong, increase the shock. And so as time went on, uh, and he was sitting before, by the way, an impressive shock generator that went from forty volts to four hundred and fifty volts of electricity. And how much and, was needed to cure someone? Uh, boy, I'll tell you. Well, obviously, you know, with 120 volts coming out of your, uh, coming out of your wall socket, although that's 10 amps, uh, the amperage was probably less, but it doesn't take that much to kill somebody. 120 volts will kill you. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, uh, as people got the answers wrong, they were given increasingly, uh, heavier shocks. And what Milgram found is that 65% of everybody that came in to do the test were willing to administer 450 volts of electricity, even though the person they were administering the electricity to was screaming and begging to be let out and was complaining that his heart hurt. In fact, there was no difference between men or women. 65% of the men administered 450 volts of electricity, 65% of the women administered 450 volts of electricity. Uh, and Milgram's conclusion and others' conclusion was, uh, well, I guess what we've learned in the history books, we've now learned in the laboratory, that we can repeat this these horrors. By the way, for your listeners, yes. they, if you look up the Milgram experience, our experiment, uh, the, the, the learner that was getting the shocks actually wasn't feeling any shock at all. Yes, that I was that he was a paid actor mm -hmm. uh, and was just screaming and begging to be released. Uh, the, the, the experiment was about the person who was giving the shocks who didn't know that he was an actor and kept giving them anyway. Right. Uh, and uh, so shocking, uh, to use a little pun there, but I mean, and this study shocked the world. It really did because people went, wow, it doesn't take a lot for people to start, you know, torturing each other. Yeah, I, I'm glad you clarified that because I was thinking some people out there could be listening and saying, wait, are, are you saying they actually killed people yeah. in these experiments? <laughs> and, you know, most of us going in would probably say, I wouldn't do that. But right. then, lo and behold, that's what they did. And they just did it because some person they didn't even know told them to. That's right. You know, something else I also like about your experience your exchanges, and I've used kind of thing before, like when people talk about a child getting cancer. Okay, that's a tragedy. We all know it. But then you say, well, let's think about this. That is a tragedy, yes, but do you want a child to 
not have any pain? I mean, do you want a child to be, say, indestructible until age 12? And it, it's really an interesting thought experiment. Yes. As you know, what I do is, is I'll just take them down the road and say, somebody will say, see, when I'm asked a question like that, it's always specific. Mm-hmm. I've never asked the general question of why does God let children die? It's mm-hmm. always very specific. It's why did God let Kaylee die when, of cancer when Kaylee was six? Or why did God let Braden get killed riding a skateboard when he was eight years old? But let's just take Kaylee and the cancer situation. What I always reply is I say, well, it's not just Kaylee, right? Uh, you don't think that other people uh, should or should die of cancer. Other kids shouldn't die of cancer either, right? And they always, 100% of the time, no, of course other children shouldn't die of cancer. Well, then I say, well, it's not just cancer, right? You don't think children should die of other diseases. Isn't that what you think? Oh, of course, children. God shouldn't let children die from other diseases either. I say, well, do you think it's God should stop them from be, children from being killed in car accidents or other accidents or drowning in swimming pools? One, I'm not kidding. Just ask. Try it on your friends, those of you that are listening. Try it when somebody says this. 100% of the time, people go, of course God shouldn't let children drown in swimming pools or be killed in car accidents. Now, so should they be, should God allow them to be raped? Of course God shouldn't allow them to be raped, ever. <laughs> well, and just to make the, finally I get to the point that you've already made, and I'll say, well, if this is the case, to what age do you think children should be indestructible? And most people laugh at that because it's a ridiculous, you know, I mean, obviously what, what are you going to do with indestructible children? I mean, really indestructible? How would you even make them? In, how could God make them indestructible? Uh, is he going to make them into steel until they're a certain age? Or how does that work? Uh, uh, does he just do millions of providences every single day so the children can never be hurt? But not kids as a kid. Yeah, I, I, but what happens? One, one woman blurted out, I said, what to what age? She says, 12. I said, well, so at 13 years old, it's okay, going to be okay if a child gets murdered or dies of cancer or rape? Well, nobody thinks that. Mm-hmm. And plus, one of the things about this world is because you can be hurt uh, when you're younger, you, your parents are watching you, and so they're trying to keep you from the things that could hurt you most, but you're still experiencing some hurts. So you know what these hurts are so that you don't do the more serious and stupid ones as you get older. In other words, there's an education process going on there that's important. And if a kid was indestructible until 12, uh, they wouldn't, man, they wouldn't have learned a lot of the lessons they needed to learn about the horrors of how you can get hurt and, and just so on. I mean, it's just, you know, Billy could be sharpening or cutting a steak with a knife next to Bobby and he could jab his knife into Bobby, and then God could turn the knife into rubber, and the whole family can laugh. But that's a cartoon world. That's not a real world. Yeah. In a real world, you know, our actions mean things, and God doesn't just fix them all the time because he's trying to teach us that our actions have consequences. And I'm thinking, I mean, even things like an 11-year-old man could go and rob a bank if you want to or something like that because, hey, police can shoot him all they want to. Nothing's going to happen to the kid. He can do whatever he wants. Right. I mean, in fact, you could tell your you could tell your eight, nine-year-old kid, hey, why don't you go p- play marbles in the freeway? You'll just bounce around a lot. Mm. I mean, why not? 
And you tell your kids, you know, hey, go free climbing. Because if they fell down, fell off the cliff, what happens? They just, they'd be fine. Boy, but what happens when that same child wants to go free climbing when they're 13? Uh-oh. Uh, it's just, what you brought up here, Nick, is something I really encourage your listeners to pay very, very close attention to. And that is, people will frequently, skeptics will frequently bring up a, uh, um, here's how God should have arranged the universe differently than he did. And whenever they say that, don't panic. Instead, just sit there and say, okay, tell me how God still allows beings to have a significantly free will like he does now, and yet reduce much of the suffering. And what you'll find is, and it's amazing to me, is what you'll find is, is you'll find people most of the time get mad at you, because that's typically the reaction I get from people, is they get mad. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not God. There has to be a way. And I say, well, if you can't think of a way, maybe there's not a way. Mm. And and I've even, even very educated people, I was review, debating on the unbelievable radio program a couple of years ago, a professor from the University of Kent in England, and he said, I said to him, how does God arrange the universe with a significant amount of free will, uh, and, and, like we have now, but diminish, or, you know, the suffering that we're going through. And he said, well, I don't know. He says, I'm not the divine being. Yeah. Well, that's a cop-out, frankly, because if you, again, if you can't think of a way that God could do it, maybe there isn't one. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I can't think of one. I've been doing this for a lot of years. How does God keep us, how does God teach us the horror of sin and rebellion and, and that we need to be careful over things uh, and and give us free will, and yet greatly reduce the amount of evil that we're suffering. I don't know how he does that. I can't think of a way. Yeah, and you know, to be fair, also when we talk about the burden of proof, I always say the burden of proof lies with whoever makes the claim. If I go up and I say God exists, it's up to me to prove that burden. It's not. I don't go to be able to say God exists and says, "Okay, convince me." Well, you give me a good reason why I should think He doesn't. No, his inability to give a good reason doesn't mean that I have a good reason that my case is made. So if I'm making the claim, I need to back that burden. But for a person using a problem of evil to argue against God, they're making the claim, so they do have a burden to back that. Well, yeah, because if they're going to say God could have arranged the universe differently and, and thus pre prevented so much evil, well, okay, tell me how. You know, because otherwise, what you've just, that's just no more than a mere assertion. My mere assertion is God could have done the, made the world differently. Well, tell me how. And if you really can't think of anything, then maybe that's because there isn't another way to do it. And I, that's one of the points of my book that I'm arguing, is that the world that we live in with all the sin and all the horror that you and I are, are seeing, and so is everyone else, is a good educator for us and we're learning the horror of sin and rebellion and we're learning to use our free will responsibly because natural laws work in regular ways.
you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast up there. I'm Nick Peters, your host. we got Dr. Clay Jones here. But if you're here next week talking about things that people don't understand as evil, we're going to be kind of continuing about a little bit. What about the Israelite conquest? Isn't that an objection we receive so many times? Well, John Walton is going to be my guest next week, one of our favorites here. He's written a book recently, The Lost World, the Israelite Conquest. And so we are going to be talking about the conquest of Canaan. Canaan, have have we gotten it wrong? And we're going to be getting his take on matters. But Dr. Jones, I remember someone pointing up on Facebook right after the uh, Las Vegas shooting and saying, how is it that we can believe in a good God and that God is in control of this world after something like this happens? Well, you know, one of the things about that, uh, Nick, is that how when somebody wants to kill somebody else, what's God supposed to do? Stop them every single time? Mm-hmm. Uh, he could do that. But what is that? But what if he wants to teach us the horror of how evil people can be? How does he teach us that knowledge? that humans really aren't good. How does he teach us that? Well, I'll tell you one thing that he does is he allows things like the Holocaust to reveal to us the horror of humankind. But now let's, let me make a further point here. When it comes to the horror of humankind, uh, if God was to stop everybody all the time, you wouldn't think that people, you or you wouldn't know how bad people really are. And this is important knowledge for us to know how bad people really are. And then mm-hmm. the question becomes, well, how much is too much? For instance, people go, well, we shouldn't have allowed the Holocaust. Uh, and I then immediately reply, well, six million Jews were killed. I said, would you be okay if only 600,000 Jews were killed? Well, of course, the answer is always no. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, would you be okay if 6,000 Jews were killed? Of course the answer is no. Would you be okay if six Jews were killed? No one ever says yes to that question. Uh, because, of course, it, it's wrong. I mean, if you're going to do that, why should God even allow one person to be killed unless he's trying to reveal to us humans the horror of rebellion against him? He wants us to see how evil that we really are and the way that he accomplishes that and the way he accomplishes showing us the depths of human sinfulness is by allowing people to act in free ways. But for instance, how would God stop the Holocaust from happening anyway? Mm -hmm. Uh, Does he, for instance, when people went to shoot Jews, do all of their guns misfire? Uh, Do they... Do they miss? They're just terrible aims, and they don't. They no matter how hard they try, they just can't hit, hit their target. Uh, how does he stop it? Does he make it so you know when when they uh, put him push him into the gas chamber that the gas just doesn't come out of the out of the ceiling and poison them? How does he make it happen uh, without radically changing human free will? Uh, and I mean, for instance, he could stop the death, the killing in Chicago if he wanted. But, but, you know, people, people shooting each other in Chicago. But how does he accomplish that without taking away people's free will? And free will is valuable, but free will means that beings are going to be able to hurt each other. And when people go, well, this is so much suffering, I think we need to remember that there's a larger context. And the larger context is very important, and that is God's going to fix it. 
uh, we all, most of us are only going to live on this earth, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. That's all we're going to live on this earth, but eternity comes. And we have to look at the horrors of what's going on here in the context of eternity, where God is going to fix it forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of it also could be, again, the Americanization of our culture, because we've got churches in Africa, in China, in Iran, in many other places that are suffering far, far worse, that are encountering death and evil every day. And they're not asking as much about the problem of evil as we are. No. Well, you know, it's funny because I've had uh, uh, I've had students from Africa in my classes, and I don't mean African-Americans. I mean Africans, people from Africa in my classes. And one of the first one that said it to me kind of blew my mind. Uh, and then uh, he says, you know, uh, one fellow put it, he says, you know, in Ethiopia, the problem of evil is something that doesn't even come up among Christians. It's just not even something that we talk about. Uh, and that was really surprisingly interesting to me, that it doesn't even, it's not even a conversation that they have. And so then I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, uh, to take it a step further, um, why not? Why aren't they thinking about this? And I think the thing is, is because it, for them, evil is everywhere and it's evenly distributed. It, for them, everybody's dying, uh, everybody's struggling, uh, they, they see it more. Uh, th- so I mentioned this to my classes, and I had a black fellow who uh, was a missionary to Somalia, which, well, I thought that's a gutsy place to be a missionary to, but anyway, black guy who's a missionary to Somalia, and when I mentioned that to another class, he says, you know, I find the same thing. We're, no one's asking that question. I think where this question comes up, the, the question of why God allows evil, is really in a, is kind of a third, is first world armchair kind of thing, where you're sitting in your comfy chair uh, in your nice house, uh, and drinking a glass of Chardonnay and going, why does God allow evil to occur? Well, uh, you know, I mean, those when you're when you're in the thick of it, it's less of an issue. And I, anyway, I, I just throw that out. That's surprising to me, but but it, it's less of an issue when you find countries where they're just dealing with it on a daily basis. But I, and I think one of the reasons for that is is a lot of people see evil in in the wet in the uh, first world. Uh, they see they see evil as unequally distributed, but and in some ways it is. But evil is a lot more equally distributed than we think. For instance, as I like to point out, only one thing is going to prevent everyone listening to this broadcast to this podcast. Only one thing is going to prevent everyone listening from watching every single person they know die from murder, accident, or disease, and that will be their own death from murder, accident, or disease. So we're all suffering evil here because everyone's going to watch every single person they know die, and the only thing that's going to prevent them from watching every one they know die will be their own death. And so this is a harsh world, and evil is a lot more equally distributed than people think. 
Yeah, I'm in the middle of that. I was thinking, I'm wondering, are you going to be coming out with a motivational calendar sometime soon? <laughs> like, <laughs> I always kid, by the way, when I teach this, I always kid at this point. I say, you know, but when I die, I want to die like my grandfather died, yeah. peacefully and in his sleep, not screaming like the passengers in his car. Yeah. Like, because it is, uh, it is, this is, you know, this is heavy, serious stuff. Nick, it's mm. about the problem of evil, and it's about good and evil in the world, and it's about the fact that man has decided to rebel against God, and let me put it another way. So humans decide to rebel against God, and so what's he basically do? He says, okay, knock yourselves out, and so he steps back from the world, and he lets the human race hurt each other to see how horrible humans can be to each other, and as we kind of at the very beginning of our talking together, as we said, uh, you know, and the thing is, is what happens is, is people are unwilling to look at their own sinfulness. And that's the problem. uh, Because once you begin to understand how sinful you are, it changes things. Once you understand, as I like to put it, that we were all, that all humans were born Auschwitz enabled, the problem of evil changes from why does God allow evil to why does God allow humans? Mm-hmm. And that's a hugely significant issue. Why does God put up with us? And the answer to that, we already talked about that some minutes ago, but it's because God wanted to create beings with free will because beings with free will are valuable. And you and I couldn't even imagine being around, you know, beings that didn't, or things that didn't have any more free will than a toaster or a microwave. Yeah, and that, that's in fact part of a sci-fi world. We have David, you can have all these movies that you've had where it seems like there is a perfect world, but one thing has been changed severely limiting our freedom, and people decide, no, we don't want this. That's right. That's right. It, it, you know, but the bottom line is, is uh, we want we want to be around creatures that have free will, or we would be very, very lonely. And uh, so, it just doesn't make sense. And, and would I want to be, I mean, I, I, what does it even mean? Am I going to be turned into a robot? And if that's the case, then that means I don't have even the ability to have free thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. What kind? The Lord doesn't want a universe full of nothing more, well, with any more free will than a toaster. Mm-hmm. That's just ridiculous. Now, uh, another way that I loved in Haven Book was it did convict me on more of a solution. I think we spend a lot of time talking about the solution. And the solution ultimately is heaven. And at this one, even I can start getting a bit skeptical sometimes because, sadly, the way most churches present heaven, it's not really anything to be excited about, you know? No, it's true. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Uh, Sadly, uh, and I think it's because, and you know, as you know, Nick, I spend the last three chapters of my book on heaven – because we've got to spend more time thinking about heaven, and, and we hardly spend any time thinking about it at all. In fact, eternal life is uh, the P.S. Uh, to the Christian life for most Christians. And what I mean is, you'll hear, I've actually heard people say this, man, become a Christian, have a great life here, and then, yeah, when you die, you get to go to heaven. Like, like heaven is an add-on. To eternal life is an add-on to the Christian life. That's not what the scripture teaches. What the scripture teaches is that eternal life is the main event. Mm -hmm. That this is just boot camp. What we're in now is boot camp for eternity. But Christians have become 
uh, well, they, they don't think about heaven at all. And one of the things, as you know, that I do in my book is I go through myths about heaven uh, because what's happened is, is that the Satan has distorted our view of what heaven really looks like. He's distorted our view of it so that heaven looks like a place you wouldn't want to be. Uh, because a lot of people think of heaven as being a place where we're going to be sporting flightless wings and strumming harps, singing nonstop and sitting on clouds. If I, could, if I could jump in you know, a little bit at that point, I mean, heaven is often depicted, for instance, as an eternal church service. And I have to say, if I've been into enough church services, where I'm sitting there looking at my watch the whole time, thinking, where, am I, where are we going to watch on TV when we get home this, this afternoon? Yeah, well, it's true. I mean... He- heaven is depicted as we're just going to sing, and that's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where they get that from is from, the, I think where they get it from mostly is from the seraphs that it talks about in Revelation at one point that they never cease to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come, mm-hmm. the Almighty. And they never cease to say those things. Um, well, all I can say to that is uh, that that's not what the scripture even teaches about the seraphs. Mm. If you read the rest of Revelation, you'll find that the seraphs are doing, they're not singing all the time. Uh, that sometimes they're handing things to angels or doing this or that or the other thing. What we've mi- misunderstood is what it means for them to never cease to sing. That cease, never cease could mean that they sing in a loop nonstop forever. But never cease doesn't mean that. For instance, the scripture tells us, commands us, pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that at every waking moment we're supposed to also be praying? Well, that's impossible. I thought at one time it meant that. So I was, when I was a freshman in college, I was reading my, I sat down to read my geology textbook and I said, okay, I'm going to pray while I'm reading my geology textbook. Well, I didn't get through two paragraphs. Before I went, that can't be what the verse means. It doesn't mean pray without ceasing, as in you never do anything other than pray. Uh, and what without ceasing means is, is that it means that our life is supposed to be full of it, that we are supposed to be doing it regularly, not that we're doing it nonstop in a loop. And so, sure, we're going to, I'm sure we'll be singing God's praises in heaven, and I'm sure we're going to enjoy it. But the scripture does not teach that, that we're good. That's all we're going to do. In fact, our eternal occupation, and this is what I end my book with, as you know, is to reign with Jesus forever. Our mm-hmm. occupation is reigning right. with Christ. Our occupation isn't being in a choir. Yeah. And at the same time, while knowing heaven's important, I do get concerned when so many pastors treat heaven as if it's also just the goal. Like you can have an altar call and nowhere mentioned in there is the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God, or repentance. It's just, forgive me, I want to go to heaven. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, as in, what they really mean often is, I don't want to go to hell yeah. more than they even want to be in heaven. And uh, the trouble is, too, and this actually, uh, one of the troubles if you don't preach about hell and a lot of churches have gotten away from preaching about hell, and, and they don't preach even much about heaven or eternal life. Mm-hmm. The Christianity, if you cut out the other world, heaven mm-hmm. and hell, if you cut that out of Christianity, then Christianity be- starts sounding a lot like a self-help movement uh, mm-hmm. where you have the 
pastors giving three steps to better communication, uh, four steps to getting along with your spouse, and so on. Now, there's no, there's nothing wrong with talking about how to have better communication or about how to get along with your spouse. That's there's nothing wrong with those things. But that's what for some churches that's what the becomes what it's mostly about. Because if you lose sight of the other world, then Christianity becomes about this world primarily. And the things of heaven grow strangely dim. Uh, but what we need to do is be focused on heaven so the things of this world become strangely dim. Mm-hmm. And, and But you, that's why you have so much worldliness in the church is because people are focused on, on, uh, you know, on the world rather than on heaven. Yeah, I mean, I heard so many sermons that pretty much they're just pure application sermons. And I'm thinking, I could get this from a self-help book if I really needed it. I want to get something that's exclusive to the church. Give me the kingdom of God. Well, right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, and the kingdom of God encompasses all that we can't see. Uh, the kingdom of God includes what we can see, of course. We're we're in the, you know, I mean, but it includes what we can't see, the other world. And when Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, or actually at the beginning of the Sermon, before the Sermon on the Mount, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't mean the kingdom of heaven was coming. He meant that it was at your hand, that you're surrounded by the kingdom of God right now. In fact, Mm -hmm. he even says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So we're surrounded by the kingdom of God, but this is the invisible world. And all of this relates to the problem of evil and why God allows evil, because if you try to understand why God is allowing evil only from a this world perspective and what's happening in this world, you'll never be able to come up with the solution to it. You'll never be able to say anything that can help people. But once you bring into the fact that eternity in heaven is coming, that's a life changer. I mean, that's just a major, major, major. That changes your life. Uh, but D. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's the famous West uh, preacher of Westminster Chapel in London, he said, he said about the Christians' problems, he says, most of our problems are due to a double failure. We fail on the one hand to understand the depths of sin, and we fail on the other hand to understand the glory and the wonder of what God is going to do for us forever. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And that's one of the big focuses of my book, is to focus on the depths of human sinfulness and then the glory of what God's going to do in the Christian forever and ever, that we're going to reign with Christ. And by the way, the reason eternity is so important to talk about when it comes to the problem of evil is because if eternal life is true, mm-hmm. eternity will dwarf our suffering to insignificance. Yeah, I'll say that one more time. If eternal life is true, Eternity will dwarf our suffering here to insignificance. So all these people go, well, why would God allow so much evil? It's insignificant compared to the uh, eternal life that God has in store for those who repent and trust in Him.
Okay, I, before I get into my next question, because I think it could be a bit long, I'm going to go a little bit early here and do what I normally do every hour and 20 minute mark. Must let everyone know that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener supported. And so, uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, and people, please do consider being a part of it. And you have no idea how much it would mean to me to know you're out here, you're supporting the work, you like it, and things of that sort. Go to DeeperWatersApologetics.com. There's a link on my side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you go there, you click in that section, you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, the Ministry of Mike Lacona. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie. And you make your donation. You say, hey, I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. You get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and let us know, and we will get that donation. It will be tax-deductible entirely. And then we, we'll make most use of that that we can. I mean, we have a lot of expenses here. And then also, you can go buy books that I've written on Amazon, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christians, or one I've co-written, Divining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, other ones like that. And then, Isa, Jewelry, okay? I mean, if we're talking about the problem of evil, where if your wife is suffering a lot, something that can really help reduce that suffering her mind some, could be if you get her a nice little pretty piece of jewelry. Especially if you're the source of that evil at the time. And many times we are. It's like, guys, get some jewelry for that lady in your life. And ladies love jewelry. And if you get it through the Deeper Water store that we have through Premier Jeweler, 25% of the price of what you purchase goes to help us out. That's really important for us. So, I mean, guys, the way I see it, you can buy a nice piece of jewelry to make up that screw-up that you just did with a woman in your life. Or you can buy a nice piece of jewelry to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make of that woman in your life. Now, Dr. Jones, do you have an organization that you'd like to see people donate to? Well, boy, I'll tell you, there's a lot of them. Uh Rosho Christie, of course, which is a university ministry, uh, apologetics ministry. I am, I'm the chairman of the board of Rosho Christie. I'm a big fan of Voice of the Martyrs, uh, and uh, I think the persecuted Christians need help all over the world, mm-hmm. and also Open Doors, which is another persecuted Christians ministry. Uh, I, I just, anyway, so thanks for asking, Nick. Those are, mm-hmm. those are uh, three places that I'd encourage your listeners to consider. And I encourage them to consider it. As well, and I, I know that I've spoken at some Rascio Christie events here. Uh, this past Wednesday, Mike spoke at one here at Kennesaw Local University. Allie and I were both there. Very good events, and we we definitely do care about the persecuted church and such, and we do need to be supporting them up there. But getting back to the talk of heaven, I mean, Dr. Jones, I'm usually pretty much a very, very happy person. I'm 37, and I still usually run pretty much everywhere I go just because I'm happy. And, I mean, if you hear me humming some sort of tune, my wife knows it. It's usually from some video game I've played growing up and such, or still do from time to time because I'm still a gamer. And 
I enjoy giving myself a good drink. I enjoy reading a good book. I enjoy learning. I enjoy debates. And I'm a married man. I enjoy intimacy with a missus. I enjoy her kisses. I enjoy everything about being with her. And it, it's all very good and such. And so many times I wish there was more time in the day to do things. But at the same time, sometimes when I think about eternity, even if I think about eternity in heaven, it can seem a bit scary because I can think, what will I do for eternity? And that, that can seem frightening. I and mean, can, can, you, can you relate to that, any? Right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think that's why the last chapter of my book uh, is is about your eternal occupation. What are mm. you going to be doing for eternity? Mm. And the answer to that is you're going to be reigning with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Mm. Uh, reigning means rule. Uh, and uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.11, if we endure, we will reign with him. Mm. And when I first read that, well, I'd read it many times actually, but you know, sometimes a verse will jump out at you that you really hadn't seen clearly before. Well, anyway, one day I was reading that and I went, it said, I read, if we endure, we will reign with him. And I went, wow, reign? You mean like rule reign? Because the only kind of reigning I know is the ruling reigning kind of reigning where you're in charge. Well, so I thought, you know, I need to study this and see if I, am I taking this out of context? And so I decided to study the idea, the concept of reigning, and ruling and reigning are synonyms. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, so I went to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, in fact, the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, and it says, and that's Genesis 1.26, and it says, the Lord said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the birds of the air and over the fish of the sea and over everything that walks along the ground. So the very first thing that we're told about humankind is that humankind was created to rule. Uh, and then uh, you'll find other verses, of course, on this throughout the Bible. But then the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, in fact, the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible before we get to the epilogue. And the epilogue, in Revelation 22, the epilogue is, uh, do not add to these things, don't take away from them, I'm coming quickly. That's the epilogue. Uh, so, but the last verse before the epilogue says, is Revelation 22, 5, it says, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the first thing that we're told, the first thing we've ever heard of, that's ever been, as far as we know, ever said about the first recorded words about humankind, Genesis 1, 26 is, and God said, let's make man in our image and our likeness, what, make us like, make them like us. And the next words out of his mouth are, let them rule. So that's the first thing said about humankind. The last thing, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, as I said, in fact, the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, before you get to the epilogue is, and they will reign forever and ever. So God has created us to be in charge. Uh, in fact, if you'll notice, when, there's a parable, right, of the uh, talents where the Lord says, put them in charge over cities. Uh, I think the bottom line is, is that God has created us so that we will be in a position where we are reigning over his kingdom with him forever and ever and ever. In other words, we're not just going to be singing songs, but we're going to be reigning with Jesus forever and ever. Okay. But what's... 
supposed to be so exciting and appealing, but because it's just rooming. Who are we ruling over and what are we doing exactly about rule? Why will we enjoy it? That's one of the big questions. To reign over something, you're reigning over other creatures. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you, no one reigns over inanimate objects. You don't reign over toasters or microwaves. You, that anybody said they reign over it would just be kidding because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, you reign over other creatures. And I think that the bottom line on that is, is that the Lord is going to probably have many, many, many creatures that we're going to reign over. And this is uh, concerning to some people, but I don't think it needs to be if you really think it through. Some humans are going to be reigning over other humans, uh, depending on their success here. For instance, I'll just give you an example. Remember, the mothers of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you please say that one uh, one of my sons will be sitting at your right hand and another will be sitting at your left hand? You'll notice what Jesus didn't say uh, in reply. Jesus could have said, what do you mean? There's going to be no right or left hand. What do you mean? Uh, everybody's equal. You'll all take turns sitting at my right hand or left hand. He doesn't say that. What he said instead is he says, it's not up to me who will be seated at my right hand or left. That's up to my father. But then he says something else. He says, you know, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He says, but it won't be that way with you. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And so Jesus has then told us that the key to being great in God's kingdom is dependent on how good a servant you are here. But I think there's probably, now I'm speculating a little bit. I don't think I'm speculating too much. I'm speculating a little bit, but I think there'll probably be many, many, many creatures that we are reigning over. Uh, I expect that many of them will talk, if not all of them. This is, again, this is speculation. My theodicy that I present doesn't rise or fall on this, Nick. It's speculation. But uh, I think it makes sense because you can only reign over other beings. You can't reign over, as I said, inanimate objects. And uh, uh, I I think that I had a woman after I taught on this once come up to me and she says, well, I don't want to reign over other beings. And I thought it was so strange because she was an equestrian. And by that, I mean, she was a horse lover and owned she and her husband owned two horses. And guess what? They literally reigned over those horses every time they got on their backs and rode around on them. They were in charge mm-hmm. uh, of those beings. They enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like pets. I mean, it, you reign over your pet. Unless, perhaps, I'm going to kid here, unless it's a cat. I don't know whether yeah. anybody can over a cat. But but we do, we do reign over our pets, and we enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine having reigning over beings, uh, many of them, I would guess, uh, for many, many, many uh, different kinds of beings for uh, that were never going to die and could interact with you. I think uh, humans like that, and I think that's pri- going to primarily be our occupation. Well, I know our occupation is reigning because the Scripture says that. Exactly what beings will be reigning over, the Scripture isn't entirely clear on, but uh, there, there's my speculation. Yeah, we we have a cat here, and every time I come in, I always say, find him and kneel down and say, your majesty, and then go on my way, because I say, when you enter a house, it's proper to address the lord of a household first. That's right. No, I, yeah. that's true. And my wife and I were with him a little bit some, just about an hour or so before the show started, and 
said, sometimes it'd be so nice to get inside that little kitty head. And she said, yeah, but sometimes it wouldn't because, you know, sometimes he could be just plotting how he's going to kill us in our sleep. I said, oh, honey, that's ridiculous. I said, you mean he's always doing it? Absolutely. Well, it's a good thing he's not a very big cat, huh? Because <laughs> if you're a big cat, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I get what you're saying about reigning over things and such. And Pommy is wondering, where, how does that mean that we're supposed to approach this life now? I mean, I mentioned a lot of the things that I enjoy in this world, and I don't think you're telling me I shouldn't enjoy them, but how should I enjoy them in light of eternity? Well, I think we should, you know, I, I, you know, the scripture actually teaches, and I quote these verses in my book, the kingdom of heaven is more often compared to a banquet mm. than any other thing. Right. And so one of the things that you can expect that's going to go on in heaven is that we're going to be in a banquet uh, because that's what the scripture says, mm. the wedding supper of the, of the lamb. Right. I mm. mean, and uh, it even goes on and says uh, uh, that we're going to be eating fatted meat and it's this aged wine. In other words, the good stuff. Uh, I mean, I'll just quote one verse, Isaiah 25, 6. It says on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. That one of the great things is see. We're going, we're, we've been invited to a banquet. Now, we're not just going to sit at a banquet all day long. The Lord, I'm certain, has things that he wants us to do and accomplish for his kingdom. And that's what we're going to be doing. But part of it's going to involve banqueting. And I'm all for the banqueting part. I like that. Now, you know, here's something that makes me probably different. And it can relate to people who have a hard time relaying some images of heaven. Because in many ways, I'm really not... A big food guy. There are some things I can go for, but as an Aspie, my diet is extremely limited. The meal portion of any get-together and such is when I tend to suffer through so much and such. So when I was growing up, hearing imagery of the marriage supper of a lamb just did not appeal to me. And what do you say when you encounter some people that for whatever reason, some image doesn't appear. I mean, like, if it's compared to a wedding, someone's like, well, I had an abusive spouse. If God's compared to a father, he said, well, I had an abusive father and such. What do you do if you're giving this analogy and some part doesn't appear to someone? Well, you know, that's a great question. Of course, whatever problems that you might be suffering now or might have now, Nick, that would cause you to not enjoy food, you won't have, first of all, in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Uh, also, uh, Uh, And I think this is a hugely important thing, uh, and it's a huge topic that you've just brought up, but but it's so important for us to, in everything, to model uh, what it's like to be for parents to be good parents so that their kids will be able to go, I know what a good father is like, I had one. But you're right, because a lot of people, like, frankly, my wife's father growing up was not a very good father. So she has to relearn. And what I would say to these people is stick in Jesus, read the Bible, meditate on the word of God, delight yourself, in fact, in the word. And the Lord will begin to reveal himself to you as a father or as a husband or as a and you'll begin to appreciate this. 
uh, without having the baggage of having these relationships ruined. And of course, as you know, Nick, this is Satan, some of Satan's best work. Yeah. Some of Satan's best work is to destroy uh, the image of what it means to be a good husband or to be a good father so that children and, and spouses and others go, man, I don't want either of those things because my only experience with them is bad. Well, that's Satan's work. Satan is simply trying to confuse, doing his best to confuse this so people don't have a good image of what it would mean to be a father. And as you, I'm sure you know, Nick, a lot of atheists had either didn't have fathers or uh, their fa- I mean, by that their fathers were gone, they're absent from their lives, or they didn't get along with them. Oh, this is faith of the fatherless. Right. It's the faith of the father. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I saw Lee Strobel's film. He, you know, when he was an atheist, he couldn't stand his father. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, that's not anyway. So that's the kind of thing going on. But but we need we just need to if you are struggling with something like that, where an image uh, doesn't seem right. I encourage you, my brother, sister in Christ. Spend time, realize that what's happened is the world has messed you up. Satan has tricked you into believing false things about these relationships. Uh, and he's going to go out. And as you draw close to him, you'll begin to see the truth. Mm-hmm. My wife certainly does help me improve on this. I and mean, there are some things I can, like that's kind of like, this is just kind of something that I usually tolerate. But I think this also extends to what I was asking about enjoyment, that you enjoy the things down here because... God meant for us to enjoy them. I mean, that's First Timothy six seventeen. God gives us all things richly for our enjoyment. And if we're not living lives of joy here, why should anyone care about the gospel that we're giving them? Well, you know, I mean, the psalmist said, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important for Christians. Some, sometimes you'll run into Christians they kind of do this, if it's so pleasurable, it must be sinful. Yes. Like God is anti-pleasure. That's just, even that statement, frankly, is satanic. Uh, Satan is the first one to say, if it's so pleasurable, it must be sinful. And he's disseminated that to his minions who have been saying it ever since. Because, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the only one that's ever created a pleasure in the history of the world it has been God. Mm-hmm. God created all the pleasures. God created food. God created drink. God created sex. God create. God created these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satan hasn't created any pleasures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, the Father is not in any way, shape, or form opposed to pleasure. He's only opposed to pleasure's misuse. Mm-hmm. And, and so in heaven, uh, we're going to be doing what we want to do, and we're going to be around people that are not going to die, and we're all going to be doing things that are supremely meaningful because we're going to be so pleasing the most supremely powerful uh, and wonderful person in the universe, and that's God, the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's another opposite side to this as well, and it's one that we can easily forget. And my wife has a problem with her language sometimes, and she's working on changing that. And then she read this passage, I believe it's one in Matthew, that you will give an account for every idle word that you have spoken. You know, I think we read about the judgment and such, and we just don't take it seriously. We say, yeah, but God forgives me, I'm under grace, so I'm good. That's a very wrong way to approach judgment, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, because you're not, no one's good. See, that's why we, you need to go, we started off talking about how humans aren't good. People need to look at their own sinfulness more carefully uh, mm-hmm. and understand that really most Americans are adulterous murderers in their heart, but because they don't do it, they think they're good. The trouble is, and we need to preach this kind of a message more than we do. We have a tendency to not want to talk about human sinfulness. Why? Because it's uncomfortable and you're not going to exactly win non- a lot of non-Christian friends. That being said, you can win a lot of souls, but you're not going to win a lot of friends because Jesus was always going around talking about how sinful people were. In fact, uh, a student came up to me once when I was talking about the depths of human sinfulness, and he says, is this a message we really want to get out? And I immediately replied, well, in John 7, 7, Jesus said, the reason the world hates me is because I proclaim that what it does is evil. So WWJD. Uh, what would Jesus do? He, he proclaimed that the world was evil. And the reason we need to do this and proclaim sinfulness is because, as Jesus also said, uh, I came to call the, the sinner, not the righteous. I came to call the sick, not the well. Well, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, what he didn't mean is he didn't mean that he didn't come to call righteous, healthy people. What Jesus really meant was, and you know this, Nick, mm-hmm. is he meant that the only people that can come to him are those people who all have already realized that they're sick sinners. As long as you think you're a righteous, healthy person, you're not ready to come to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he needs to reveal to you that you're a sick sinner so you can be saved. Mm-hmm. That's what's really, you know, that's what's really going on. And that's, by the way, why he allows us to have to pay the penalty for our sins so that hopefully many of us will realize that we're sick sinners and need to become saved. Mm-hmm. So what does that say though about the judgment? I mean, what what can we expect as we're Christians? I mean, it's not we're in danger we, we know we're not in danger really of God throwing us into hell. We don't believe in work salvation, but what can we expect? Well, you know, there's another there is a thing where the Lord is talking in Corinthians and he says that we're all going we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You're right. Mm-hmm. It's not about hell or not. But our works, our works are going to be judged. Again, I emphasize it, this is not about hell. We're not, it's not about whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. That's not it. But we are going to have our deeds analyzed. And Paul says that each one should then be careful about how he builds on the foundation that has been laid. That's Jesus Christ. He says some people are building on the foundation with gold and silver and costly stones, says Paul. Others are building on it with wood, hay, and straw. He says, and the day is going to come when it's going to be revealed for what it is. And so we are going to go through a type of judgment, often called the Bema judgment. Uh, We're going to go through a type of judgment, but the judgment that we're going to go through isn't one that will send us to heaven or hell, because in Jesus we're already saved. And as you said, we don't believe we're saved by how good we are, but we are going to be examined for how how we did in the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we're talking about the whole problem of evil also, I think something you get into is how we handle it when we encounter another people. I mean, you know I've been in this field for a long time, and so... I'll often encounter others who are just getting into it, and I'll try and take them under my wing some, help them out. And something I've told to people, I said, look, if you are ever, say, the pastor of a church, and a woman comes to you, 
and she's a member of your church, and she's crying because she just lost her teenage son in a car accident, and she doesn't know what to do. I've said, look, if you become a philosopher at that moment and start waxing about the problem of evil and such, I am going to come over there and I am going to smack you. Well, I agree 100%. Uh, Absolutely. I tell my students, uh, I put it in my book, uh, the scripture says, weep with those who weep. Mm. Because even if you don't understand the issues regarding the problem of evil, frankly, this is a big problem, Nick, is what happens is that somebody will see somebody suffer and they want to fix it. And so they'll say things like, it'll be okay, or God's going to work it out for your good. And these things God will work it out for their good if they continue to stick in him, stick with him. But when somebody's just lost a child, just as an example, what they need is a hug and what they need is support. They need you to weep with them. Uh, they may need you to bring them some meals. They, they need, you know, I mean, but the, the time when somebody has just suffered a loss is not the time when somebody needs to, wants to have you sit down and explain God's larger plan in the universe. Now, that being said, in time, such a person that's when somebody has suffered a loss, often that person in time will begin to go, I want, I need to understand what God was doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, then that's the time when you explain to him what he's doing. But you're absolutely right that when somebody has just as recently experienced a loss, the last thing you need to do is wax philosopher or start to give them spiritual bromides. Here, oh, it's going to be fine. God's in charge, you know, uh, you know, and so on. It's going yeah. to work out for your good. That's not not yeah. when they've just suffered a loss. Well, you know, when you're talking about uh, how we have a tendency that we want to just fix the problem of suffering is going on, I'm saying, I am so thankful that myself and so many other husbands are not like that when it comes to our wives suffering, that we don't just jump in very immediately and try and fix what's going wrong in their lives. Although that is, as you know, kind of a kind of a stereotype of your stereotypical husband who immediately start giving a solution. But yeah, uh, traditionally, what a lot of men are finding is the very first response that a wife wants from her husband isn't a quick fix. Right. They want to be heard out. Yeah, for, for many of us men, we do want a prob- We do want to talk about the problem, and a lot of times they want to talk about how they feel about the problem more than anything else. But what you're saying there, and yeah, I, I definitely agree with it. And something I've also told my wife was something that helps really pe- helps people really deal with suffering many times is if they have a place in their worldview where they can already explain suffering. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I think it was, jeez, uh, I, I can't remember his name right now. I'm having a, a mind blank, but he's that conservative Jewish scholar who comments on so many issues, and I just can't remember him now. But this guy did a study, and looking at couples that had divorces and such, and asked, and it, it was usually after some sort of tragedy struck, like the death of a child of theirs or something like that. And he asked, what was the main factor that usually kept them together? And one of them was, that they had a place in their worldview to explain evil already. It wasn't totally foreign to them. 
Well, I think that I have, I'm not familiar with that, but I think that's really good. And I, I believe it completely. One of the things that's amazing is having studied this for as long as I have is, and this is actually really a huge benefit. Evil doesn't shock me. Uh, I, it just doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised by humans doing evil because the scripture says in Romans uh, chapters one and three, basically, mm -hmm. well, in three it says, there is no one who does good, no, not one. Humans aren't good. Uh, so I'm not shocked by it, but it's so true that having an understanding of what God's doing in the universe actually makes us more capable of handling severe and responding to severe suffering ourselves because we kind of get it. You know, it's, it all makes sense. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the books I quote, uh, Iris Chang's book, The Rape of Nanking, about the Japanese invasion of Nanking, China, which was horrifying. Uh, Iris Chang then went on and start write, started writing a book about the Beitan Death March. And she just started going kind of off. She started having lots of emotional problems and finally killed herself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I don't know how, as a non-Christian, you can process, uh, you know, Las Vegas shootings and genocide and things like this. I don't know how, as a non-Christian, you can process it. But frankly, as a Christian, it confirms my worldview. Yeah. People aren't good, and they're going to do terribly sinful things to each other. So as a part, opposed to others going, where can you find an affirmative meaning in life if humans can do such things? It confirms the Christian worldview. Yeah, I, I do remember it was Dennis Prager who did that study. Okay, I don't sure. remember his name. But, you know, I'm like you, when I heard about the Las Vegas shooting and such, I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, how can this great evil and such happen? I mean, I was kind of expecting it. Sure. In many ways, because, I mean, this is just what happens. And I listen to talk radio, and that's what was dominating the news for so long after that happened. We kept talking and talking and talking about it. And I'm thinking, you know, it's okay to talk, find out about what happened and what we can do about it. But why is this a shock to people? Because unfortunately, we live in a world where people are just evil and people do evil things and we should care about the victims and such, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, I wasn't, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all in any way, shape, or form. Mm. I'm surprised when we have long periods of t time where nothing really bad happens. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, again, Paul said, there is no one who does good, not even one. Yeah. Humans are not good, and until you get, if you don't understand that, you're going to wonder why people are doing bad things. Well, it's because they're not good. And as I said, as we've said now several times in this in our time together, uh, the world is full of adulterous murderers. It's just when somebody acts it out, we go, wow, why'd that happen? Well, you know, I mean, this is what people are. They harbor hate in their hearts. And sooner or later, if you harbor hate in your heart, you're going to act it out. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking right now there was a book about called The Imp of a Mind. And such. it's about how some people get some thoughts that just seem so incredibly sick and disturbing them, they don't know where it came from. And people go to counseling therapists, it's like people who say, think about, have this thought come to their mind about having sex with their mother, and they're ultimately disgusted by it, they want to know where it comes from. And one example the author uses also is being at a train station, seeing a train coming, and a person gets their thought, their head with a random thought, hey, push that guy in front of you right in front of a train and see what happens. Right. And, I think 
Dare I say, if most of us were honest, we've all encountered the imp of a mind to some extent like that. Well, humans, you know, except when I see people doing sinful things, here's my encouragement for me anyway. I'll say to myself, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. anybody who is really familiar with the sinfulness of their own heart know how easy, especially as a non-Christian, where I'm not redeemed, I'm not born again, I don't have a guide to life, how easy it is to do terrible atrocity. Uh, sin is not far from us. And anyone who's a sin, really looking at himself realizes that sin is not far from them. Yeah. I, I think we, we really lost sight of mm-hmm. sin today in our culture. It's something I've been, remember, when we talk about dealing with our problems in the world today, we don't talk about dealing with our behavior so much. We talk more about dealing with our feelings and getting our feelings in line. We don't have a culture that pretty much teaches about virtue and vice anymore. Well, you know, it's, it, what's happened is the world has given up Christianity. Uh, and now, but see, I don't ever think most of the Americans were Christians, but an awful lot of them mouthed it. But now we've even given up inherited Christianity. In other words, it wasn't ours, but we've got the inherited principles of Christianity. Now we're giving that up and anything goes. Well, you know what? Uh, People need to think this through. If anything goes, then anything goes. Mm -hmm. And that means people are going to just do worse and worse and worse to each other all the time. Yeah. I think we got Dostoevsky saying there, if there is no God, everything is permitted. That's correct. You know, that also brings up another point about evil that people forget that evil is something every worldview has to give an answer for. And if an atheist wants to raise a problem of evil, well, he's still got evil in his world, and he still has to give an answer for it. And something that occurs to me is, you know, when you argue against the Christians, you can say, you know, we have an answer, therefore Christianity is false. But the thing is, you've also removed the only real hope that could possibly there be for the world. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because if there is, what everyone's striving for is they're trying to find some way to be immortal. Yeah. In fact, my next book is, which is entitled right now anyway, how will how does God use suffering? One of the things that I found is that non-Christians, even though uh, they've rejected Christianity, are trying to find a way to be immortal. And so they do that through having children or through legacy, writing books, or or even being a part of political movements to give themselves, where they say, I've done something that's going to go on forever. Uh, but the trouble with that is it's meaningless and it's hopeless, and you're still going to die. And, uh, what, and then, of course, the Bible teaches it's even worse, and then you're going to give an account of yourself before the creator of the universe. Well, I... I'd definitely like to interview you on this book when it comes out. I hope it won't be 24 years before it's published. No, no, but willing, it won't. <laughs> well, as we're nearing the end, what would you say right now to someone who's listening up there who is suffering intensely from some evil right now? What would you tell them? I'd say, first of all, that God loves you. Uh, he loves you very much, and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus understands suffering because he was tortured to death for your sins, and and God loves you. That's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is, if you walk with Jesus, I guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee it. If you walk with Jesus, He will find. He will teach you through this. You'll learn things. He'll work this out for your good. 
And, and uh, the third thing I'd say is get involved with a Christian community if you're not already and uh, talk to some people, get into a small group where you can share your problems with people and the Christian church can support you because that's what the Christian church is for. Okay, well, we don't have enough time, I don't think, to get into another question, so I'm just going to go ahead and start wrapping things up here. Um, Dr. Jones, if people want to get in touch with you and find out more, do you have a, a blog, website, and email, a way they can get in touch with you? My blog is... Uh, clayjones.net C-L-A-Y-J-O-N-E-S dot net Uh, Mm -hmm. and on my blog I give my email address Mm -hmm. so uh, that's probably the easiest thing Uh, I'd say you can also look me up on Facebook I'm running out of available Facebook uh, room because they'll only let you have 5,000 friends but I'd be glad to friend somebody too uh, until I actually run out of room uh, but uh, the, probably the best thing is uh, claydjones.net, and like I say, my email's there, and uh, you can get in contact me that, with me that way. The book is Why Does God Allow Evil? At the time of recording, I looked on Kindle here. The paperback is thirteen oh three. The Kindle is nine ninety nine. Uh, Doctor Jones, do you have any final message you'd like to leave with a deeper world's audience today? Yes, I do, Nick, and it's something we've already talked about, but I'll just make it as my last comment. Everyone focus on heaven, focus mm-hmm. on eternity. I'll just give you uh, three verses on that uh, from Colossians chapter 3. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, or Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you've died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears you will appear with him in glory. Mm-hmm. I encourage you, uh, dear listeners, to memorize those verses and to do those verses because it will help you to enjoy your life, to be more fruitful for God, and to give you more peace as suffering comes upon you if you're focused on the fact that eternity awaits you forever with Jesus. Well, Dr. Jones, I'd like to thank you for giving of your time today and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Very good. Well, thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be on with you. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, We're going to have John Walton on talking about the lost world of Israelite conquest. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.